This morning's sermon text will come from 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 32. You can find this in the Pew Bible on page 237. Let us hear the reading of God's holy word. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up, David said. To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites, and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, of the son, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkot Hasarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned uh, neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, 
Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of a spear, so that the spear came out his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amah, which lies before Giah, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night. And the day broke upon them at Hebron. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Have you ever considered why landmarks are important? Landmarks are important because they let us know where we are and where we're going. They provide reference points of orientation. For instance, when we go on vacation, we leave Florida and we go up into the mountains. How do we know that we're in the mountains unless we see the mountains or the mountains on the, landsca on the landscape? Many times we'll stay in a condo in Pigeon Forge, if you've been to Tennessee, that sits right outside of the Smoky Mountains. When we get into our condo, we believe that we're in the mountains. And usually we will get there in the evening. But in the morning, we open up the windows and we look outside and we see the peaks of the mountains in the distance. So are we really in the mountains? In proximity to where we are here in Florida, yes, we're in the mountains. But yet we're reminded that the place where we're going is in a distance. It's still a distance to come. And so when we uh, see this, we have reference points that give us our orientation, that give us our location uh, in, our, in our journey, in our trip. And the Bible uses landmarks in similar ways. The Bible uses landmarks in a better way because it gives us reference points, reference points of our location and redemptive history. It also orients us to the kingdom of God. That's important because the kingdom of God is the thread that runs through the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. 
It was the purpose of why Jesus came. He came in order to declare and proclaim his kingdom. And so today, that's what we will speak about. We'll speak about the kingdom of God using the reference points of David's reign so that we can orient ourselves to the kingdom of God. So the first way that we're going to look at that is we're first going to look at David's reign and how it begins. The second way is that we'll look at how David's reign was opposed. And thirdly and finally, we'll look at how David's reign brings hope. So for our first point, we look at David's reign and how it begins. Our sermon text begins with David having lamented Saul and Jonathan's death. The Lord's anointed had been defeated in battle. And David shows this great humility and this great love, especially for those that are the Lord's anointed, and he laments for them. But then in chapter 2, we see the way it begins is that David inquired of the Lord. How did David inquire of the Lord? We've heard this uh, discussion about the Urim and the Thummim. There are these rocks that are used to ask questions of God and you receive answers from it, especially the kings did. And Saul over in uh, chapter 21, and, and I believe it's chapter 21 in 1 Samuel, he had killed all the priests because the priests had been allowing David to inquire of the Lord. Except one priest escaped and he went and he lived among David and his people. And so David, when he was inquiring of the Lord, he was using the ways that were given to the king of God's people to inquire of God, to ask of God, to acknowledge God. This was so much different than what Saul would do. Saul would only use God for his own purpose. David was very patient. David would wait on the Lord. He would acknowledge the Lord in all his ways. So when David, at this point, it had been 15 years since Samuel had anointed David. And David, now seeing that Saul is dead and Jonathan is dead, he could have seized upon that opportunity to say, well, I was anointed by the prophet of the Lord, Samuel, 15 years ago. I should go and I should take my place in the kingdom. But yet that's not what uh, David does. He inquires of the Lord. He submits to the Lord, knowing that he, it is not his kingdom in which he is to take control of unless God permits, unless God is ordained, unless God is purposed. So the first landmark that we come to is this place called Judah. This place called Judah. In Genesis 17, 6, God tells Abraham that kings will come from you, from your lineage, from your seed. And because he promises this to Abraham, it will take shape in his heritage, in the future generations. And in Genesis 49, verse 9 through 10, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, tells his son Judah that the scepter would not depart from him. The power of rule that was promised to Abraham would be given to the tribe of the nation of Judah. When Saul was anointed as the king, uh, as the king over Israel, he came from the tribe of Benjamin. He did not come from the tribe of Judah. David 
was born in Bethlehem, in Judah. And so there we see that he will be the fulfillment of God's promise. And so David, when he comes into Judah, he's inquiring of God that should I go up into the cities of Judah? Should I receive my promise? Should I receive your promise, God? He comes up into Judah, and when he's there in Judah, the men come of Judah, and they receive him, and they make him king. All these reference points are very important because what we see next is David's first act as king. He turns to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, those who have been loyal to Saul, and he turns to them and he, he recognizes how merciful they've been, how loyal they've been. And he, he prays for the blessing of God to be upon them. Why this is significant, because it's like whenever there's a corporate takeover in the world, what's the first thing that executives do? They go in and they get rid of all the leadership that was beforehand because they are loyal to the old regime, to the old administration. So for David to come and be king over all of Israel, that which he was anointed for, he could have come in, taken the opportunity to advance in a way to destroy all the people that had come before him. But yet we see what David does. He acts in mercy. He acts in the mercy shown by the people, by the men of Jabesh Gilead, that had shown mercy and honor to Saul. And so these landmarks that we're seeing and hearing of, they point to something significant because they point to Christ. David is a type of Christ. David is a type of Christ that he would be born of the seed of Judah in Bethlehem, just as the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so if someone came up to you and said, what is the kingdom of God? What would your answer be? Could you answer that? Do you contemplate that in your life? Like, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the place where God rules and where his rule is found. We see that that thread that was moving through David of being called into Judah or looking to God to see whether or not he was permitted to go to Judah to be in the promise of God would be woven and threaded through the Old Testament to the New Testament to the person of Christ Jesus. You may say, well, it doesn't say that here. But the entire Bible testifies to that end. If we go all the way to the last book in the Bible in Revelation 5, when the heaven is open, when heaven, eternity is open for John, and he sees one that is upon the throne holding a scroll in his hand with seven seals. John's weeping because there's no one worthy to take the scroll and to open it. But as John is weeping, the elders say to him, don't weep, weep no more. Behold what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. See the thread that is moved, that goes through the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament that is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who will be the one that is worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. 
But in addition to pointing to Jesus as the one, as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, he also, John also describes a lamb, lamb as though it had been slain who took the scroll from the one who sat upon the throne. That's important because it shows us something about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not just the place of God's rule and authority, but it is the place of God's salvation. God rules all of creation. It's his kingdom. It belongs to him. But when the people were seeing that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, they were crying out for his salvation. Hosanna, Lord, save us. They were pleading for the Lord to come and save them. And so what can we learn about this kingdom of God from the story of David? What do the reference points teach us about it to us? The first is, is that God's kingdom, the way it comes, it comes in God's appointed time. No man is going to bring the kingdom before God's purposes come. In Galatians chapter 4, it speaks about that Christ came in the fullness of time, in the time of God's appointed time, when it was right, when it was filled, when God's purpose had come, Jesus would be born into this world. Just like with David, David had been uh, anointed as king for 15 years. He had great victories. It was almost like, David, what's taking you so long to become king? You had your opportunity to take out Saul, but you didn't do it. So what's taking it so long? But David was waiting upon the Lord. He was waiting to find out, is this the Lord's time? It's his appointed time. The second thing that we should see about the kingdom of God is that it's relatively unseen. In Luke 17, 21, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, how will we know if the kingdom of God comes? And Jesus tells them it's not a kingdom that comes with observance. You can't see it. When Jesus entered into the kingdom of Jerusalem at that time during Palm Sunday, he didn't come with banquet and ceremony like other earthly kings would come. He comes in a very humble way, riding upon a donkey. David, when he goes into Judah to begin his kingdom, he goes in a way that's not full of pomp and ceremony. He just gets up out of the land where he was, and he goes into Judah. Third, what we see is that the kingdom of God begins small. In Matthew 13.31, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed. Very small, very tiny. If you've ever seen a mustard seed, it's, it's very small. And when it goes into the ground, Jesus says, this enormous tree comes forth. And when that tree comes forth, the birds of the fowl of the air rest in its branches. There Jesus was describing how the kingdom of God would come. It would begin small, and it would grow. It would go over time. It would take time for it to build and get mature. But as it matures, it would be the place of salvation, rest, refreshment for all of his people that would come and find comfort in the branches. So when David comes into Judah, his kingdom is very small. And we'll see in chapter 3, 4, and 5 
That kingdom is going to grow very quickly. It's going to grow uh, uh, and to encompass all of Israel. It shows it begins small, it has a process, and then it expands. And the last thing that we're to see about the kingdom of God and how it comes, it comes with mercy. David didn't come in with force and take his place. He came in pronouncing the mercy that the men of Jabesh-Gilead had shown to Saul. And there, David shows that same mercy back to them. That's the picture of the kingdom of God. And so we need to ask ourselves, how do we acknowledge the kingdom of God in our life? Is the kingdom of God real to us? Or is it just a word that we use in church that we just read in the word of God? Or is it something that we're always mindful of that when we see opportunity to advance, we better inquire the king of kings. We better ask God who is the king whether or not this is your will. This is your purpose. It seems like the opportunity is there, but should I advance? Should I go forward? When we think about our life in relationship to the kingdom of God, do we consider the spiritual reign of God in our life who knows every heart and every person? What we do each day, are we inquiring of the Lord whether it pleases him? whether that is something that would please him and glorify him. The kingdom of God is the power and the rule that is given to God's people, to those who would receive his kingdom. And that brings us to our next point, that David's reign is opposed. The reference points we have is this person named Abner. Abner. Abner is the commander of Saul's army. And when Saul is put to death, what does Abner do? He goes and he takes one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and installs him as king of Israel. There we see that what Abner is doing, he's not even regarding what David had become in Judah. And so what Abner also does is he calls for a battle, a competition in Gibeon, a battle in Gibeon. Abner calls Joab, the commander of David's army, to get all their men, come and let's have a competition. Let's see who is the strongest. We can see what Abner's doing. He's trying to establish a kingdom in opposition to the kingdom that God established. God had established a kingdom through David. Not through Saul, but through David. God had, uh, had, had, had deserted, had, had uh, been done with Saul because Saul sinned against God. And there God turned to David, anointed him as his son, as the one who would lead, bring his kingdom into the world. And so as Abner is in competition with David and his men, it started out as a very small competition. Abner probably thought, well, this competition will be over. We'll show who really is the strong ones. And it's not David. It's me. It's what I am. It's who I am to bring my men. But as the battle goes on, the battle becomes fierce. That all of the people that are fighting, the men that are fighting, they're dying. And it becomes this great battle that finally David's men overcome Abner and Abner flees. So as Abner's running away, 
The brother of Joab, the commander of David's army, pursues him with great focus. He doesn't look to the left. He doesn't look to the right. He's focused right on Abner. He's going to get to Abner. He's fast. He's relying upon on his talents and upon uh, his skills to come to Abner. And Abner says to Asahel, turn away, turn to the left and the right, and take one of the men, the young boys. My life is more valuable than theirs. And he also says that, so I don't have to kill you, because if I kill you, I'm going to lose face with Joab. How can I look Joab in the face? There we can see about Abner, it was all about himself. He was only concerned about his role, his power, his authority, his position. And he was going to get it however he could get it. The first way that he was able to take it was he established Ishbosheth. He put Ishbosheth in power. Well, who's Abner? That he can determine who the king of Israel should be. And then Abner wants to show that he's more powerful than David. And he wants now, since he found out he's not, he wants to save face with Joab, thinking ahead of his position in David's kingdom. And so we can see here that through Abner, there are those who will resist the kingdom of God. And when they resist the kingdom of God, the way, those who resist the kingdom of God will be those who refuse to receive him. Abner would not receive David as the king of Judah. And what Abner was doing was saying, God, I don't receive your king. So those who oppose the coming of the kingdom of God, that oppose the kingdom of God, they will not receive God's king. They will not receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus Christ came unto his own, his own received him not. They would not receive him as king. They would deny that he should be their king. When it came time for them to choose Jesus over Barabbas, who did they choose? They chose Barabbas. They didn't choose Jesus. And so Abner's the picture of those who would resist the coming of God's kingdom. Abner also, in resistance to God's kingdom, he raised up arms against God's kingdom. Those who resist God's kingdom will raise up their own provisions against the provisions of God. They will raise up their weapons and their devices, their strategies against God as if they can conquer God. Here's God's purpose and plan in our life. There are things that we receive in our life that we don't like, that we're not happy about, and that what we really should do is submit to God but yet we raise up our own defenses. We raise up our own arms, our own defenses to usurp the authority of God. The other way that you can resist the kingdom of God is that you're indifferent to him. We live in an age where people are really indifferent to God. God may be there, he's just the old man upstairs, but what position does he really have in my life? It doesn't fit my logic. It doesn't fit my intellect. So I'm indifferent to them that, well, whatever, you're a Christian, believe what you want to believe. 
But that is a resistance of the kingdom of God that comes with a, the power of the Spirit. The other way that Abner resisted the will and the kingdom of God is he set up competitions. How often do we set up competitions with God? Trying to have our will to see if our will will prevail over God's will. It can happen so often when we don't have our ways before God. When our heart is not being led and acknowledging the Lord in all his ways. And we see that when Abner was competing and fighting the battle, the battle was becoming tiresome and weary to David's men and to Abner, that they wanted to end the pursuit. And so that's bringing us to our next point, to our final point, about there's a new day that's dawning. And that new day that is dawning with the coming of David's kingdom is one that brings peace. And because when David's day comes, he's going to bring a reign not of tyranny, but a reign of mercy. We see that in his first act. And so Joab, after Abner had killed Asahel because of Asahel's recklessness of going after Abner, Joab and his brother pursue Abner. And they, they see that Abner finally retreats to Benjamin. He gathers all his forces. And Abner says to Joab, so how long shall we continue this battle? Because if we continue this battle, basically everyone's going to die. And so Joab is convinced of that, and he blows the trumpet to say the battle needs to end. And then specifically what the writer of Samuel does is he basically tells us to change the page, turn the page. Right at the end there, verse 32, it says, And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Where did the day break? Not in Israel, but in Hebron. And the place where God had sent his king to begin his kingdom. There's a new day in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a new day. The day where we have been battling and going uh, up against God, that day is over, the trumpet is blown. And now the new day of the kingdom of God is broken in. The dawn is upon us. Because when the kingdom of God comes, it brings a new day where there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's no more war, there's no more fighting, there's no more death, there's no more sickness. This is the day that people are looking for. This was the day in which Joab's men were looking for. This was the day even that Abner was looking for. Abner was looking to be rid of all the possibility of death. That goes throughout all the world, no matter if you're a believer or not. You want death to be gone. You want sickness to be gone. And the only way that sickness and death and all the oppression and tyranny of all the things that are unjust in this world can be gone is if the kingdom of God reigns. Because we have a merciful God. We have a merciful Lord and Savior. And when he brings his kingdom, he reigns with truth, with love and mercy and righteousness. 
He rids the world of all the pains and the evils of sin, and he brings in the new day. He brings in the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom that he has inaugurated, that he has begun, it's growing into its maturation estate where we're going to see it one day in its full estate when he returns again. And when he returns again, all the sorrows, all the suffering, they'll be gone. Because there is a day of refreshing. Sometimes when we go through it during the day, we've had a hard day. We're tired. We're really frustrated. And it's like, man, when is this going to end? Sometimes when you just go sleep and you get refreshed and you wake up the next day, it seems like everything's gone. Everything's much better. The day of refreshing has come. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That when the kingdom of God it comes alike and pushes back against the kingdom of darkness, where the wars and the battles that are taking place, the disputes, the disunity that's taking place, as it was between Joab and Abner, that you grow weary and tired of the battle, that the kingdom of God comes. The stronger, the one that is stronger than the strong man that holds you and delivers you from the kingdom of darkness and brings you into the kingdom of light, that you may have rest, that you may have peace, that you may live in eternity with your Lord and Savior. That's the kingdom that we pray for. That's the kingdom in the Lord's Prayer. When we ask for the kingdom to come, that's the kingdom we're asking for to come, to come in its full realization, to come in the splendor, because God is now reigning over us, giving us his grace and his mercy, giving us the promises of the kingdom that we can taste, that we can have a foretaste of what waits in heaven one day. Because when we get to heaven, this meal that we're about to take place in, we get the full picture. We get the full experience. We get the full moment where we get to sit with the king of all eternity and we get to feast upon the riches and the blessings of his grace. Not just in part or foretaste, but fully, completely. We have the promise now. God has given us the promise now that we can look for a better day. Do you long for a world of suffering to be removed? Do you long for the coming of Jesus? Are you growing frustrated with the coming of Jesus? Are you indifferent with the coming of Jesus? We are to long as Christians for the coming day of the Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come now. Bring the new heavens. Bring the new earth. Restore Everything that you had created from the beginning, remove the effect and the perils of sin that you may receive glory and praise because you alone are worthy of it.